You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Words matter. I spend my whole day dealing in words. And they have meaning and they have implications. And right now, Canada is refusing, the Canadian government is refusing to say a certain word, even though our allies have. And that word is genocide. We've all known for a long time that ISIS has been carrying out genocide against specific groups. There are many, but let's go over three of them. Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims. They are targeting these groups for death because they disagree with them on theology. There, are, there were large Christian populations throughout Syria and Iraq. Two-thirds of them have left or been killed since the fighting began. The Yazidis have lived there for millennia. They have also been targeted for extermination. And then there's the Shia or Shiite Muslims. That's a different branch of Islam. It's different from the brand of Islam practiced by ISIS. ISIS are Sunnis, specifically they are Salafists, and they take a specific view of Islam. And if you don't agree with them, they'll kill you. So they've been targeting these three groups, and the world has been trying to find a way to deal with it. It's why the coalition is there. It's why the humanitarian crisis and the refugee crisis is going on. I know that some people like to say, well, we, can't, we have to separate the fight against ISIS from the refugees. Really, you can't. Not if you're honest, not if you're serious. And unfortunately, too often, this government is not serious. The United States last week, I believe it was on Thursday, declared that what ISIS is doing to Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims constitutes genocide. Secretary of State John Kerry, a member of the Obama administration, a very progressive former senator from Massachusetts, made the declaration in his duties as Secretary of State. This follows upon the European Union on February 4th, declaring that what ISIS is doing to Christian Yazidis and Shiite Muslims constitutes genocide. They are being exterminated based on their beliefs. And as this is happening... Trudeau's liberals are refusing to say it. I, I will play you what the minister, or the sorry, the parliamentary secretary had to say in response to this question today. And we'll get into an interview that I did with Peter Kent, conservative MP from Thornhill, who's kind of their point man on this issue. We'll get into that later on in the program. But Canada, once upon a time, under the Harper government, they didn't call it genocide either. But speaking to people who were well-placed within foreign affairs, I said, well, why not? Why did it not happen? 
And the view of the Canadian government was if Canada went out on its own, it'd be an isolated voice. There was an attempt to get allies on side. There was an attempt to say to the Americans, to the Europeans, let's do this together. And they couldn't come to an agreement before the election happened last October. But there was a push and there were discussions. And labeling something a genocide is a serious matter because it is a legal term that comes with legal consequences. If you declare something a genocide, you are required to act under Canadian law and if you subscribe to it under international law. So there's reticence among diplomats to do this until they're sure, until they know, until they also know that they can back up the word with actions because words have meaning. And when you apply those meanings, sometimes there's consequences like having to take action because you've labeled something a genocide. But the liberals don't want to do that. Instead, they're in the middle of question period saying, yes, we take genocide very seriously. Well, why won't you label it genocide? Canada strongly condemns the crimes perpetuated by the so-called Islamic State, including those committed against religious and ethnic minorities. But genocide is not a term to be used lightly, and Canada is a member of the International Criminal Court, which means the use of that term is different than it is for the United States, who is not. That was Pam Goldsmith-Jones, who's the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Now, she just throws it out there, and we'll play more of this later on in the program. She just throws it out there that, well, the U.S. can say that because they're not part of the International Criminal Court. There are still American laws that apply to them, and there are still actions that the Americans have to take, actions triggered by their own law that if you label something genocide, you must act to do something. But what she didn't address is that the European Union, which they are members of the International Criminal Court, have also labeled what is happening genocide. The liberals are refusing to do this, and they're refusing to do it on a day when MPs are debating an opposition motion from the conservatives over the Office of Religious Freedom. I'm going to link a few things together for you here so you can see a pattern emerging. The conservatives established the Office of Religious Freedom within foreign affairs several years ago. And some people don't like it, including some conservatives. Oh, we shouldn't do that. Well, the Americans have had one for a long time. And the reason they have it is so that they can call people out. And this office is there to stand up for you no matter what you believe or even if you do not believe. Because, as was pointed out in question period today by conservative MP for Sherwood Hills, um, Port Saskatchewan, Garnet Janus. The fact is, if you, if you are an atheist in certain countries, including Bangladesh and Saudi Arabia, guess what? You're in trouble. You could be dead. Is that right? No, it's not. Is it right that you could be dead because you are a Roman Catholic or a Protestant? Right now, there is a priest being held. He was captured by ISIS in Yemen. They are threatening to crucify him on Good Friday. I remember years ago when I would be told to look after interns in the newsroom here at CFRA, and I would tell them, you've got to pay attention to the religion. And one day a reporter said to me, why would I care about religious stories? And I walked over to the Ottawa Citizen. I flipped open it so you could see the whole front page. And there were stories about terrorism, there were stories about war, there were stories about sainthood. 
of about five stories on the front page. Three involved religion, but they were all news stories. It wasn't the religion columnist talking about what Pastor so-and-so said. They were all news stories that somehow touched on religion. And when you look at persecution around the world, it is religion is often at the core. Some of you will say, fine, get rid of all religion. That's not going to happen. And you shouldn't be persecuted for what you believe. You shouldn't have to be an unbeliever not to be persecuted. The liberals are doing away with the Office of Religious Freedom. They have all but admitted that because they're uncomfortable with standing up for religious freedom. So the Opposition Day motion is about this, and the liberals are pushing back, at least the cabinet ministers and the prime minister. They do not like this. They do not like standing up and saying, that group should not be persecuted because they're Christians or Yazidis or Shiite Muslims. It makes them uncomfortable. And it goes back to when the, the liberals took over from the conservatives. The conservatives had made a priority for religious minorities when it came to refugees coming from Syria. And no, despite what the Toronto Star and the media party on Parliament Hill will tell you, it was not just Christians. They were looking after everyone that was targeted by ISIS. The liberals came in. They said, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be asking people their religion. We shouldn't be making that a priority. They then turned around and said, we'll make LGBT a priority, which, by the way, they failed on for the very same reasons that they won't stand up for religious freedom. I say if you're being targeted by ISIS, I don't care why, you become a priority over someone that's just fleeing violence. If you go back and you will be killed because of what you believe or who you are, you are a priority, but not to the liberals. They just want to take whoever's next on the list, and they don't want the Office of Religious Freedom, and they don't want to call this genocide because that might trigger actions, such as saying we will give priority to these religious groups, or trigger actions such as saying we will send our bombers back in because when we say it's genocide, we have to act to stop it. And what we're doing now will not stop the genocide, and they know it. The words that a country uses can help define it. Justin Trudeau has been trying to talk about sunny ways. He wants to say that Canada's back. He wants to put a bright smile on things. But he's not interested in doing heavy lifting. He's not interested in, in taking a stand on a matter of principle such as this. Now, I hope that he changes his mind. I hope that he is able to see the light of day and will do Canada proud on this. Because despite what people in the PMO may think, I don't hate them. I don't hate their leader. He is the prime minister of all Canada. We need the country to stand together on this. It shouldn't be a left-right issue. It shouldn't be liberal-conservative. It should be standing up for people. There is a genocide going on. We need to call it that. We need to denounce it. And then we need to act. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. 
Budget Day. Or, as I like to call it, the day I don't see daylight. We get to details on the budget in, the, in, in a moment, but tomorrow I'll be bringing you full coverage of the budget. I know CFRA coverage starts at 3.30. I will actually be in the lockup for most of the day, conducting interviews, reading over documents, speaking to finance officials on background, and a good chunk of tomorrow's show is going to be devoted to the budget. And it will be my own take on it. There will be other people's takes, and you'll hear from left and right, but you'll also get my take on the budget. But let me explain to you what the budget day is like. If you have broadcasting gear to set up, you are at the site of the budget lockup, which in this case happens to be Old Ottawa City Hall, 111 Sussex, now part of the Foreign Affairs compound up on Sussex Drive. You'll be in there about 6 o'clock. And then at 8.30, you've got to leave the room. When they bring in dogs and technical gear to try and do a sweep, and they try and make sure that there's no no little broadcast gear that will tip people off, be able to send out signals of what's in there. Then at 9.30, they open it up again, and the media can come in, and you're handed the actual budget documents as soon as you get in there. And then you are stuck in that room. You surrender your cell phone. You surrender anything that can give you... Um, I've got a, a little mobile internet thing, a MiFi, they call it. I have to surrender that. I have to surrender my phone. And I have to make sure that my computer is in airplane mode. You disobey any of those, you can face serious repercussions. So that's going on. You're in there all day pouring over the documents. There are analysts inside there. There are finance officials. There are government officials trying to spin you and tell you how great it is. And then, depending on whether you need to be up on the hill at around 3.30, you can get on a bus. Again, you're you're not allowed to communicate with the outside world. You are driven by police escort up onto Parliament Hill. You are allowed into certain areas until the finance minister stands, which is normally sometime around 10 after 4. They wait until the, the markets close. And then when the finance minister stands and starts reading from his speech... We can all yap away and tell you what's in it. It's a long and arduous day. But that's not, your day isn't done yet if you're a reporter. You have to still go around and and collect spit and talk to people. So that's what my day is going to be like. Today, most of the media were focused on what's going to be in the budget. And Ron Ambrose wanted to know why Justin Trudeau is going to be spending so much and borrowing so much. And Trudeau's answer is, hey, Canadians want us to invest. Uh, And we put forward a plan that focused on investing in our communities, helping the middle class and creating growth in a way that would help all Canadians. And that's exactly what we campaigned on. That's exactly what we're going to be delivering in tomorrow's budget. Uh Uh-huh. That and a lot of goodies for your friends, including special treats for unions. And we'll get into more about that in unions in a few moments. Uh, But they're also going to be, there's going to be changes to the EI system that really worry me. And I got the hint today. I think they're going to what has been dubbed the 45-day work year. You work 45 days, you'll get EI for a whole year. The liberals have long pushed for this. They didn't campaign, it on, campaign on it in the election. But Marianne Miachuk, the labor minister, made noises to that effect earlier today. It worries me. I'll get into more about Marianne Miachuk and question why she is in cabinet and why, how she could possibly be elected 
This woman, if you watched her today at committee, you would wonder how she could buy groceries. It's unbelievable. More on the budget tomorrow, though. But right now, the big story internationally, and in the break, I'm going to post on on Twitter. If you don't follow me on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. I'm going to send out something that my friend Benny Johnson did on Obama's really weird moment with Raul Castro. But they did meet today. Obama went to them for some reason. I don't quite understand it. He says they had a frank and candid conversation on human rights and democracy and then went on to say that, you know what, the Cubans got to figure out their own uh, stuff, but he's got some concerns. We'll speak out on behalf of universal human rights, including freedom of speech and assembly and religion. Indeed, I look forward to meeting with and hearing from Cuban civil society leaders tomorrow. Hmm. Hear that? Obama said freedom of religion. Something Justin Trudeau is having a hard time saying. But he also went on to talk about how, hey, I understand that the Cubans have concerns about us. Great. Why are you giving that the stature of going to the office of the president? Secondly, Raul Castro said... We don't have a bad record when it comes to democracy and human rights. Forget that we just arrested a bunch of dissidents just before the president's plane touched down. Forget about all of that. You know what? We're doing great. We oppose political manipulation and double standards in the approach to human rights. Cuba has much to say and show on this issue. Cuba jails more journalists per capita than any country in the world because they don't like criticism. You are not allowed to criticize the regime. And that's why they rounded up dissidents. I'm, I'm of a mixed mind when it comes to Obama going there, but I hope that he really, truly, seriously pushed him on the issue of allowing true political freedom in Cuba. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back after months. Go to the Twitter, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. Back in a bit. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I don't always say that when there's a referendum on, to quote the class, should I stay or should I go now, that the answers always go. I wanted Quebec to stay. We'll see how I feel next time they go to a referendum. I thought Scotland should stay when they held their referendum. When it comes to Britain leaving the European Union, I say it's time for them to go. I had a chance to speak with an old work colleague. Simon Kent is an Aussie that lives in London now. He used to live in Toronto. He's worked his way around the world. The stories this guy has are just incredible. But he works for Breitbart London. Breitbart is based in the United States, conservative media outlet, but they have a London bureau that covers what's happening there. And there's a big push on for Britain to leave the European Union. They're holding a referendum on... June 23rd, earlier today, down at the bunker, I caught up with Simon Kent. My apologies if I sound a little weird. A bit of a problem on my end as we talked via Skype, but here's our chat. Simon, how's the campaign going in terms of those that, like yourself, like the people at Breitbart London, that want to 
see Britain leave the European Union? Is it uh, heading in a positive direction, according to the polls, or are people starting to get nervous and shy away, as often happens with a referendum? Well, at the moment, the, the, the gravity and the weight does seem to be slightly shifting towards the, uh, the exit, the Brexit, as it's called here, because I think um, you mentioned that the people might start getting nervous when they start to think about the consequences. But in a way, that's having a reassuring effect here because people seem to be coming to the common opinion more and more that there's more to be gained by leaving than there is by staying. And there's more to be gained by being a member of the great world rather than being part of the little Europe. So part of the, the what has driven so many people in Britain crazy over the years are the, the regulations that have come out of uh, Brussels, where the, the European Union's based, trying to say that bananas have to be straight, trying to, well, they, they banned vacuum, they banned high-powered vacuum cleaners. Uh, and they, they are apparently looking, I can't remember if it was your story or, or over mm -hmm. at the Daily Mail, they had a story saying that there's a, a rash of regulations, including banning high-powered kettles and toasters, that they're holding back until the referendum's over. And the reason they want to ban high-powered toasters that work fast is to help with climate change. But all these things drive the average Briton crazy. Is that still As playing into it? As you would expect, because the, 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 the governance of the EU out of Strasbourg and out of Brussels comes down to the most absurd uh, minutia of, of modern life. And, and the examples you just gave are good ones. And when you look at the macro scale, it, it's almost become a, a form of wealth redistribution. The UK has the sixth strongest economy in the world. It has low unemployment. It has a booming economy. Yet you look across at the smoking wrecks of the economies in Europe, and, and this country has to shovel tens of millions of pounds a week across uh, as part of the equalization process to try and prop up uh, the ailing economies in Europe. And across your Canadian listeners would understand that when you think of um, uh, how some of the weaker uh, provinces in Canada uh, are propped up, sometimes with no, no, uh, no one asking the taxpayers how money can be shoveled into places. Well, here the same thing is happening, and it's a feeling of futility, I think, for a lot of British voters. They well, feel, let, what is let, the let, point? Let me, let me just interrupt and ask then, Simon. I mean, we, mm. we definitely understand that. You, you know yep. the equalization system well from having lived here and covered politics. Right yep. now, we've got Quebec has just balanced their budget. They get about $15 billion a year transferred over to them. Alberta, which gets nothing in terms of equalization, has a $10 billion deficit. So people start to get upset. But I think the difference is in Canada, and we've seen this in the past, when there's political um, pressure, the politicians will look and say, okay, is the system fair? Can we change it? In Brussels, there's no ability to put public pressure on nameless, faceless bureaucrats exactly, that aren't elected. Because, well, because they're not answerable. And, and, and you look at Donald Tusk, and there's a great picture from a few weeks ago from, from the um, European Council, and there was David Cameron sitting opposite him at a table, and I thought... What sort of future, what sort of message does that send when you have the elected prime minister, the leader of a country, sitting opposite uh, an unelected bureaucrat asking for um, some sort of amelioration to the relationship? And he's going there. And David Cameron went through this bizarre process of six weeks trawling around Europe, trying to seek compromise, trying to seek benefit for the UK. And 
basically he got nothing. Dave came back empty-handed, and I think a lot of voters saw that, and they realised this as a charade. They realised what, what a fake it is when Donald Tusk and other people in Strasbourg, answerable to no one, um, can, can, can intrude on the common good and the common life in the UK, uh, unobstructed, unhindered, and ultimately unanswerable because they never have to face anyone. And, and, and I find it extraordinary having, I'm an Australian by birth and lived and worked in Australia and in Canada, countries that love their freedom and fight hard for freedom. Here I am in a country that gave the world so much when it comes to freedom, when it comes to the rule of law and, and a whole lot of things and has shed blood all over Europe to be free. And there are people who still can't understand why this country should be free of the constraints of Europe, free of the constraints of the European Union and the rulers and the European Council. And I think a lot of people feel that this country has so much to be proud of what it's given the world. And I think this country ultimately will look outward. It'll look to the Pacific. It'll look to the Commonwealth nations like Canada and further afield. And this country will look abroad like it did 200 years ago when it, when it started the Industrial Revolution. That's the history of this country. The history of this country is not bound up in Brussels and it's not bound up in Strasbourg. Before I ask you about uh, one of the other main things, beyond crazy regulations that's really driving this right now, let me ask you about Brussels. I I know Daniel Hannan. I think he's a brilliant man. He's a conservative member of the European Parliament for the south of England. Uh, But he's very frustrated. He goes there, and and it's a talk shop. Um, Do do elected officials like Daniel, who are sent to be representatives of local constituencies in their home countries, do they have no power? Do they have very little power? Well, the members of the European Parliament can only work on legislation that's brought before them, and and they they work on the principle of the Federation of Europe, and and, uh, the EU is all for more federation and drawing people in closely, but you gave some examples before about toasters and whether or not bananas are straight enough, and and, and all those crazy little things that uh, the EU gets involved with and, and, and wants to intrude on people's life, and uh, when you think about in the 1950s and 60s when the old common market was first talked about, that there seemed to be some sort of feeling for, for British voters. There was a benefit of being involved in this. It was a common trading zone and there was a lot of commonality. And the hope was, fingers crossed behind backs, that there would be no more trouble or warfare in Europe if everyone was part of a federated Europe. I think that vision is long gone now and has been distilled down to the elements you talked about where, where people just feel the EU is is caught up in the most insane uh, tiny parts of people's lives and it's lost the big picture. And you mentioned Daniel Hannan, who's an MEP, uh, Nigel Farage, who's the leader of UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party. He's an MEP as well. And he tries his hardest to be heard when he's in Strasbourg and trying to deliver that message. But a lot of the bureaucrats look at him with the most bemused look on their face. They can't understand why um, a politician like... Nigel Farage can't see what they see, which they just see as the world's greatest boondoggle, and why don't they want to get on board? Okay, I know that there is one other issue that um, uh, Nigel Farage has, has pushed hard, David Cameron talked about, but I don't know where he stands on it because he seems to want to play both sides. That's the migrant crisis that is currently hitting all of yep. Europe. Uh, 25,000 Syrian refugees brought to Canada is a drop in a giant ocean compared to what Europe is dealing with. And as countries try to grapple with it, the European Union is often stepping in and telling them, telling the countries, no, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to give them more benefits, more welfare, and that's angering locals, isn't it? 
Well, it is. And, and what you've hit on there is the fact you don't encourage behaviour you don't approve on. On the one hand, the EU is saying, don't come over here, don't cross the Mediterranean and don't uh, get in, in small leaky boats and do it because tragically people will drown and there's a huge human cost there. But at the same time, as soon as these people set foot in Europe, they say, well, if you go to Germany, you'll be given a house and a job and benefits somewhere to live. And so, again, they're sending this contra message. Don't do this. But if you do it, we'll reward you anyway. And they're certainly not going to be sending people back to Turkey. They're not going to be repatriating people to where they're safe because when these Syrian refugees do arrive in Turkey, they're safe. The only reason they risk the trip across the Mediterranean is to tap into some of the things that Angela Merkel last year unilaterally declared uh, when she said, come to Germany and we'll look after you. Well, that message did go out in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa and it went out right across the Middle East. And I think the figures we saw today, 2 million arrivals uh, in, in 2015 in Germany. And according, according to the United Nations, only one in four uh, fleeing the actual war zone in Syria. The, most of these people are coming from elsewhere. Uh, they're coming from everywhere, Brian. They're, they're I've met them in migrants. person. Yeah, I've met them last year. I, I was in Hungary. I, I was in Budapest at the station there, at the Kaledi station, when all this started. And I went over there for Breitbart London to do some reporting. I stood there and I looked around the station. 75 to 80 percent of the people I saw allegedly fleeing problems in the Middle East were young men of 19 and 20 and 21 years old. And I wrote that story. I just could not believe it. And I'd say to them, where's your family? Where's your mother? Why aren't you at home? And they all said to me, Firstly, they said, oh, they'll come, they'll follow, they'll come after us. And then they said, where can I charge my iPhone? Or in some cases, they tried to sell me smartphones as, as they're getting on the train and heading for Germany. But this is real. I have seen it with my own eyes and I've spoken to these people. And that frustrates and, the British people. Well, it does, because I, I think they feel that, 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 that Europe is seen as a soft touch. And so is the UK. Look at Calais. All those people are in Calais that we see every night on the news trying to get to this side of the channel. They want to come over here because they see this country as a soft touch, soft touch with its benefits, with its health services, with its housing. And again, the wrong message is being sent out because it's very hard to send these people back once they arrive because of the legal system and, and, and the, the support they're given. And I don't think anyone has a problem with helping people who are genuinely in distress. I don't think people want to see people drown. Well, they don't want to see people drown in the Mediterranean. But you need a cohesive policy right across the EU. You need borders and you need frontier controls. We have none of that at the moment, which is why we've got chaos in Europe. Chaos in Europe, chaos in Britain. My interview with Simon Kent from Breitbart London, managing editor there, and uh, an all-around good bloke, a good mate, as he would say. Uh, Simon is an Aussie. Don't let the accent fool you. He, he, he blends in wherever he is. Check out Breitbart London if you want to follow more or the Daily Mail, um, another great spot for information on what's going on with Britain. There is a push to have Britain leave the European Union, and I will say this. If Britain wants to be great again, they have to get out from under the thumb of the bureaucrats in Brussels who would try and regulate what is in a pint, how strong your vacuum cleaner can be, how straight your bananas have to be, and how much benefit you have to give people that entered your country illegally. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Twitter turns 10 today. Did you hear? More on that, including my first tweet, when it was, what it said, back in moments.
always hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Do you Twitter? Do you tweet? Are you on the Twitter machine? Sometimes you'll hear me call it the Twitter. Really, that's just me making fun of people that put that in front of everything. Makes me think of my dad. The Twitter. The TV. Is it an immigrant thing? Is it a Scottish thing? I'm not sure. Are you on the Facebook? Are you on the Twitter? Did you see that on the TV? Aye, I did that. It's all right. Twitter turned 10 today. So apparently, March 21st, 2006, is when they launched. I, like I used to do on all of these things, resisted for a while. I resisted Facebook. I resisted getting a BlackBerry. I was just happy with an old-fashioned cell phone. I didn't know how to text on it, and I refused to learn how to text on it. I just wanted it to be able to, you know, people to call me. I had to be drag kicking and screaming. But eventually, March 10th, sorry, March 11th, 2009, I joined Twitter. My first tweet, figuring out how Twitter works. Thanks, Trafford. Trafford would be Dave Trafford, the former news director at News Talk 1010 in Toronto, who made me get on it. Earlier today, Christy Cameron was talking with the guys from Twitter Canada. I know some good people down there about their 10th anniversary. Today, there are so many ways to express yourself online. We've got Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat is really big right now. How has that changed the way Twitter has operating or is operating now as, a, as opposed to when it first started? I'm not sure that there's been a massive impact to our operating model. Uh, at Twitter, we've always taken a lot of pride in the fact that we're a public network, which is a bit different from a lot of the other products that are out there. So on Twitter, the idea of friending someone is a bit different. Right? You can follow somebody. Uh, and therefore, the opportunity exists to follow all kinds of people who you may not know, uh, which usually means a pretty interesting opportunity to learn about the world from people that aren't necessarily in your own social group. So our positioning has always been a bit different from that perspective. Hmm. Uh, also, I think a lot of the uses that we're seeing for the platform and, and the results that come out of it uh, are born from that. Right? So we see news breaking really, really quickly on, on Twitter because the platform is public and news can disseminate so quickly through you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world. Hmm. And when you look at Facebook, one of the big jokes right now with Facebook is, my mom's on Facebook, my grandma's on Facebook, everybody's aunt and uncle are on Facebook these days. How is Twitter changing? What is the average or stereotypical Twitter user? What does that person look like? Well, I think that's part of what was behind our campaign for this 10th birthday for us. What we're seeing is an explosion of different applications of the platform. So mostly what, what I see about Twitter in, in, the, in the mass media has to do with celebrity. You've mentioned sports, uh, lots of going on for music and arts, but uh, you know, uh, audiences and topics that are followed by a lot of people. We also find that there's an explosion of really interesting ways that people, Canadians in particular, and, and Canadians from coast to coast, are connecting with their own communities in increasingly more innovative ways. So we chose the 10, or the top 10 most interesting that we found in the last little while, uh, to denote that. Some of the examples, for instance, are uh, St. Mary's University has an observatory that is Twitter-powered. So if people want to see uh, a picture of something from space, they literally tweet to the observatory uh, and they can get an image back about uh, what they've requested. 
totally unique and innovative ways of, of using our platform that we love. Right? We love to see that kind of user-driven innovation. So in your mind this year, I know there were a lot of big Twitter moments. Obviously, Katy Perry, I know, is the most popular account on Twitter. But what were some of the big moments that stuck out to you? Well, some of the big ones uh, for us were uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, his famous tweet saying, ready. Um, and, and I think that that was one of the big ones that stands out for me. Been a number of, of particular milestones uh, in Canadian sports. So the Montreal Canadiens got up over a million followers, and that was uh, you know, a pretty special moment for them. We also find uh, you know, a great number of uses from uh, lesser-known Canadian celebrities that may not get the same sort of attention, but um, some really, really interesting use cases like the ones that we were just, I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. And I know Caitlyn Jenner, that was a huge account this yeah. year with millions of people clicking follow. What was it, in a number of minutes? Yeah, it was, I think it was one of the fastest um, Twitter followings and, and attention to a single tweet uh, in our history. And I think that that's a really great example, right? An opportunity for someone to express themselves and communicate openly and freely on this platform and touch the lives of you know, literally millions of people as they do so. I know there's always the concern that when you have something like Twitter where you see a huge momentum off the top as it ages, as it you know hits its 10th birthday, how do you keep that momentum going? Where does Twitter need to go next to stay relevant? Well, I think one of the secrets to Twitter's success so far, and certainly something that we're going to stay very close to for our future, is the idea of really staying connected to our user base. So at Twitter, we have the great privilege of having a very vocal and invested user community who loves to tell us what works and doesn't work on our platform. We're very, very good at listening, and we'll continue to do that. And I think that's what you've seen over the course of the last few years to expand the offering. Right? So Twitter started as a text-based messaging platform. Now we've introduced photos and video and gifts and, you know, really uh, gifts rather really cool uh, platforms like Periscope, which provide like live broadcast into a Twitter feed. I think you'll see uh, the acceleration of very rich tools introduced into Twitter as a platform so that people can express themselves in an ever expanding way. Mr. Capern, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. That was Rory Capern, Managing Director with Twitter Canada, talking about its 10th birthday today. All right. Uh, well, I promised you earlier that if you followed me on Twitter and it's at Brian Lilly, I tweet out some fun stuff about Obama and his weird moments in Cuba. You can find those up there now. I'll send out another later on, maybe on the Facebook as well. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, my interview with Peter Kent. You don't want to miss it. Peter Kent on why the Trudeau government should be using the word genocide Ray Hurd, former Liberal staffer, dropping in as well. And then we're into Marianne Mayachik, the Labour Minister, and local news as well. I'm Brian Lilly, Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Rather happy music for what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about Canada and whether we're prepared to acknowledge what we all know to be true in that ISIS is carrying out genocide against Christian Yazidis and Shiite Muslims. Peter Kent stood up in the House of Commons and asked 
the government that question today. Before the United States made that declaration last week, the European Union did it back in February, by the way, but Stéphane Dion was asked last Wednesday at the United Nations, and it was very evasive, didn't want to talk about it. John McCallum, actually, the, the immigration minister, actually ran away from me twice today when I asked him that question. So Peter Kent stood up, and this is the response he got. Listen to the question, listen to the answer. The member for Thornhill. Mr. Speaker, the United States, uh, the European Union, and the Vatican have characterized the barbaric actions of ISIS as genocide. But the liberals refused to use the term to describe the slaughter of Yazidis, of Christians, of Shia Muslims in territories ISIS controls. Now, is that because, Mr. Speaker, the government's watered-down so-called non-combat mission in Syria and Iraq can do nothing to stop genocide under terms of the UN Convention? It's a big word. The Honourable Prime Secretary. Canada strongly condemns the crimes perpetuated by the so-called Islamic State, including those committed against religious and ethnic minorities. But genocide is not a term to be used lightly, and Canada is a member of the International Criminal Court, which means the use of that term is different than it is for the United States, who is not. We are committed to preventing and halting genocide and crimes against humanity. We are committed to holding perpetrators of such serious international crimes to account. And our new, strong, three-year anti-ISIL strategy seeks to address the ongoing crisis in Iraq and the destabilizing impacts on Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. All right, so that's Pam Goldsmith-Jones talking to, uh, responding to Peter Kent's question on the issue of why won't we call it genocide? Well, I caught up with Peter Kent in the hallways of the House of Commons after question period and was able to talk to him a little bit about what's going on there. You asked about the issue of genocide in the House of Commons, the parliamentary secretary not saying very much of anything. What do you take away from her answer? Well, the Parliamentary Secretary uh, gave an answer that uh, basically tried to hide the government behind the International Criminal Court by saying the United States um, is not a member of that court, so it can, she suggested, be more loose and free in its term, in its use of the term genocide. Well, uh, she's absolutely wrong, because the European Union, which has also denounced the the barbaric actions of, uh, of ISIS as genocide, um, are also, the member countries are also members of the International Criminal Court. The Vatican has condemned ISIS um, as committing a genocide. And I think that this is part of the inexplicable um, uh, baffle gab being offered by this government about its non-combat role in Syria and in, and in Iraq. Do you think that they're worried that if they say genocide, then that triggers uh, a legal legally required response? Well, and it does. What it does is trigger under the UN Convention um, uh, on Genocide. It, uh, it obligates uh, those countries which recognize a genocide to take uh, material action, not to, not to act as trainers in a non-combat mission, uh, but to take, uh, to take action of the sort that the military coalition is doing, what our CF-18 um, uh, fighters were doing. Um, during the uh, during the uh, original mission, and I think that basically the government is again trying to hide behind euphemisms um, and uh, justify a, a, a second-tier commitment to the uh, to the coalition against ISIS.
The fact is also that Secretary Kerry specifically said genocide against Christian, Yazidis and Shiite Muslims. Yeah. You mentioned that in the House. The, the government that you were part of was, um, I don't know what term to use, but I guess uh, giving preference to those groups because they were being targeted. They were given preference for refugee spots. The current government says they won't ask about religion. They don't want religion to be part of the discussion. And yet these are the groups that are being targeted. Do you think that's part of their reluctance as well? Well, that, that may well be. We don't know because the government has been so uh, obtuse in, it, in, its, in its answers. But yes, our government uh, uh, made a priority the persecution of uh, religious minorities and ethnic minorities. Um, not only in Syria and in Iraq, from where they fled, those who could, uh, but in the uh, in the camps in uh, in Jordan, in Lebanon, and in uh, and in Turkey, uh, the religious minorities continue to be victims of discrimination and of hostility uh, from from Muslim populations among the refugee population and in and in uh, some of the host countries uh, to which they flee. The government was also asked about the issue of the um, Office of Religious Freedom. They seem to be walking away from that. Is this a general... It seems like a general pattern to me. They, they don't want to give priority to uh, refugees from these groups. They don't want to recognize religious freedom as uh, something to be stood up for. And they don't want to declare genocide against these three specific religious groups. Do you see a pattern yourself? Well, there's certainly a pattern where they are preoccupied with reversing uh, all of the policies of our former uh, conservative government, uh, those that uh, that may perhaps have, have required change after application and when it, when it became clear that changes were needed, uh, but there is a blind um, uh, campaign to reverse everything, uh, throwing out the baby in effect with the, with the bathwater. With regards to the um, to the situation in Syria and Iraq, uh, I think there is still some unexplained motivation um, by the Prime Minister, by the government, certainly by the, by the uh, Foreign Minister, to avoid uh, anything which would uh, represent uh, uh, an act of military commitment to fight ISIS. And last question to you, Peter, is um, what do you think that we should be doing to fight back against the genocide? Is it just bombing or should the, the, should the training the ground troops are doing be focused more like it was in, uh, in Afghanistan where they would go up to the front line with the people they train? Well, and, and in fact, this is a, 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 an unconventional war even more so than, than in Afghanistan. And these trainers, if they, are, if they are doing what the trainers did again under, under our government's uh, mission, uh, they will be uh, effectively in frontline situations. They will be um, uh, in situations where they uh, will come under fire and as the government has reluctantly admitted, uh, they, uh, they will be allowed to defend themselves. Um, uh, uh, but by withdrawing the CF-18s and tripling the ground forces, they have contradicted those two policy initiatives, uh, taking away Canadian air cover for an even greater number of Canadian uh, combatants, and they are combatants, but they have to be considered as combatants on the field with uh, the Iraqis, with the Kurds, uh, and with any, with any other groups which are fighting ISIS. All right, my interview with Peter Kent in the foyer of the House of Commons earlier today. It's one of the questions I'll throw open to you when we go to open line, open topic, at 9 o'clock. Should we be calling what's happening to Christian, Yazidis, and Jews? 
a genocide. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Don't go away. When we come back, Ray Hurd, the man who advised John Turner as his director of communications, has advised bank presidents, used to run Global News. The man has seen it all. He'll join me to talk about a few choice topics. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If you've been following my work for a while, you know the one man I like to turn to when I want to talk politics is Ray Hurd because uh, he's done it all. He covered Kennedy, he covered Lyndon Baines Johnson and Nixon. Uh, he wa- he covered Parliament Hill, became director of communications for John Turner. I'm not sure he wants to talk about that, though. Uh, <laughs> and he also has advised bank presidents across the country. Ray Hurd joins me now. Ray, um, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm still a bit shocked and dismayed by the editorial in the Globe and Mail this morning. Well, let's talk about that, and then I want to make sure we have some time to talk about the issue of... Um, genocide and whether the 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 current government should be using that term but the globe and mail and, and we we went uh, almost live with toronto police chief mark uh, saunders yeah. saying it was terrorism a week ago yes and and i gave him full marks for that uh but the globe is out saying ooh we're a little worried that the prime minister justin trudeau used the word terror in a tweet it's one of the longest editorials I've seen responding to something that's 140 characters long. Yes, and uh, as I say to my friends, the Globe editorial is so long today that that is, under the unwritten Constitution, cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> of the readers. But, Brian, well, then don't read the Globe. before we get into the detail, mm-hmm. before the last election, the Globe and Mail had the most bizarre editorial in the history of the English-speaking people. It said, vote conservative, but not for Stephen Harper. So the Globe is uh, repeating itself. Basically, what they said today was that Justin Trudeau should not have caused, called a terrorist a terrorist. And the terrorist was the person who stabbed military personnel in Toronto until he was wrestled to the ground, he repeated an attack on the military, which you saw in Ottawa on Parliament Hill and Quebecers saw in St. Jean. They were terrorists, period. Yeah, there seems to be this idea if they, if they act alone, then they're not terrorists. They're mentally ill. And, and, and therefore, we don't have to worry about them. It doesn't matter that if you, if you see the intelligence reports, if you speak to people that have read them, these people are are quite lucid. They know what they're doing. Brian, not only is that true, but the alleged terrorist in Toronto who stabbed military personnel had a good job as a baggage handler at Pearson Airport, and the Ottawa terrorist, and you'll know more about him than I did, he had a huge job earning $100,000 a year in the oil fields. So these allegations by the Globe and by what I call the media party accusing mentally ill people of being responsible libels. 
mentally ill people who are actually, most of them, God-fearing, decent Canadians who have been born with an affliction for which uh, they're not responsible. And I think the globe owes an apology to mentally ill people for insinuating that this terrorist was a mental patient when, as far as I can determine, he was not. He was an Islamo-fascist. Ray, you and I uh, both know Ottawa well. You live in Toronto now. Uh, But you spent a lot of time here. You know the Byward Market, and that's where I'm sitting right now. And there are mental, mentally ill people as soon as I walk out the door, and most of them are harmless. They yeah. have their issues, and they'll harm themselves far more than they will harm me or you. Yes. And, and that's what the, the globe is casting aspersions upon them today. Yes, and I think the globe should apologize for that. But you know, the weird thing about the globe, where I have some very good friends, some of the best journalists in Canada work on the globe and mail, one of them is someone you and I know, Robert Fife, mm-hmm. who's the new Ottawa bureau chief of the Globe. So I'm not um, casting aspersions on the Globe, but the editorial policy. And do you know well, who but, the editor-in-chief okay. of the Globe is? Who? Former head of CBC News. So what do you expect? Oh, man. Well, that, that explains quite a bit. They can't say the word terrorist. Look, I want to ask you this before we're out of time. The the Trudeau government is having trouble saying the word genocide. Now, I spoke to someone who was high up in the former Harper government about why they didn't use the term genocide. And they said, well, there's a few reasons. One, there are serious legal implications. And two, we were trying to get our allies to say it with us. And they wouldn't. Now, the European Union, back on February 4th, came out and declared that what ISIS is doing is genocide. The U.S. made the declaration last Thursday, and John McCallum ran away from me twice today. And the minister, well, he wasn't there, but his parliamentary secretary just said, oh, this is a serious word. We can't say it. I think that when people are being targeted based on their religious beliefs and and there is an attempt to exterminate them, and we're talking Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims, that deserves to be called what it is. And they can't do it, and it leaves me... Saddened and disappointed. Well, um, George Orwell, my hero, uh, who wrote Animal Farm in 1984, and it's long after 1984 now, but everything he predicted in 1984 about fascism is coming true. You call a spade a spade. I like John McCallum. I happen to know him. I once worked with him, and I once even had a few drinks with him. But... The real issue is, John said the other day, on, grant, on keeping Canadian citizenship for terrorists, a, can, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. And my only response to John McCallum is, a terrorist is a terrorist is a terrorist. This is an argument about words. Words have meanings. And obviously, genocide is when some regime or group of people sets out to exterminate a race of people. Hitler committed genocide. In the Middle East today, ISIS is committing genocide. And by the way, Iran threatens to commit genocide against the only democracy in the Middle East, which is 
Israel. So and, and if they this talk, is semantical. If they it's talk to the realistic. senators, if they talk to the senators in their own caucus, Ray, they could talk to, but they kicked them out, of course. They could talk to Romeo Dallaire, who had to watch it unfold before his own eyes because the United Nations said, you cannot do anything about and the genocide you know in Rwanda. Thir- less Bill than 30 Clinton seconds, Ray. His biggest regret of his presidency was he didn't act to save human lives in Rwanda due to genocide. That's his big regret. And Canada, where we claim to believe in what's called the responsibility to protect, a Canadian idea in so-called international law, Canadians have not only a responsibility to protect people who are in harm's way, but to brand genocide as what it really is. It is an attempt by ISIS and what I call Islamo-fascists, not Islam, but Is- mm-hmm. Islamo-fascists, we to gotta- wipe out Christians, Yazidis, and the other group are Muslims, Muslims the yeah. Kurds. The Kurds are wonderful people. Uh, and we- there are lots of Canadian Kurds who are very upset that our government has not supported their bid to get an independent, democratic Kurdistan we- in the Middle East. They're the only group who don't have their own national homeland we've got to wrap it there ray thanks for talking as always follow ray on twitter it's at ray heard if you're on the twitter machine and of course you can find our latest conversation on the rebel.media as well ray heard i'm brian Lilly. this is beyond the news back in moments Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Unreal. Barack Obama standing in front of a Che Guevara portrait, or I don't know what to call it. I don't even care if I spell Che Guevara's name right. The man was a murderer. I know people like to think he's cool, he looks great on T-shirts, blah, 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 blah. Che Guevara, in the Cuban Revolution, was Castro's executioner. And yet we've got Obama. You won't believe this. I'm about to post it to Facebook. Um, He's just standing in front of this... It's as if the... um, as if the the people in charge of the advance team, I, I've followed politics a long time. You always have someone go out on advance first. It's as if they didn't think and didn't look, or maybe they did, and they're so progressive that they just think, yeah, man, Chase cool. Like, I wore a Che t-shirt in, like, college. It's awesome. No. Che Guevara was a murderous thug. Don't believe the movie hype. Don't believe don't believe the hype of the t-shirt sellers. They're just trying to sell you a t-shirt. They don't care. They'll sell you any t-shirt. Che Guevara shot people through the head as they begged for mercy. Why? Because they disagreed with the Castros. Apparently it killed more than 3,000 people in such a fashion by the time the Cuban Revolution was over. But he's still idolized by the left. 
And unbelievably, Barack Obama stood in front of him earlier today. Now, speaking of unrepentant leftists, let's get to our labor minister, Marianne Miachuk. Marianne Miachuk is a failed NDP cabinet minister, kind of booted from her own party in Manitoba, the reddest of all provinces. I don't know. Maybe Quebec is more red than Manitoba, but you get the idea. It's a pretty lefty place, and she was too incompetent for the Manitoba NDP. So she got the heave-ho. She ran for mayor, and the people of Winnipeg rightly said, uh, yeah, we might be leftist nutbars, but we're not that much of leftist nutbars. And they rejected her. So she ran for Justin Trudeau's liberals, and she won! And thanks to the fact that our cabinet system, even before Justin Trudeau brought in his 50 percent, we've got to have 50 percent men, 50 percent women rule, which is just idiotic because there are good men or good women kept out of cabinet because of Marianne Miachuk. I mean, there were always these, you've got to have someone from Manitoba. You must have someone from Atlantic Canada. You must have, there's the regional considerations as well. If it were not for regional considerations, the woman you're about to hear from would not be in cabinet. But Marianne Miachuk was before a parliamentary committee today talking about her bill, C-4, which will reverse the conservative bills, two private members' bills, C-377, which called for, you know, an expansion of openness and transparency for union funds, and C-525, which called for a secret ballot. The same kind of secret ballot we've been electing MPs with since 1870 freaking four. Not last year, not since 1967, since 18 freaking 74, because we realized that having to cast your ballot while someone's looking over your shoulder is not actually fair. It leaves you open to intimidation. And in the case of unions and certifying or decertifying a union, you've got two kinds of of intimidation. You've got the union intimidation or the employer, and either one is bad. People should be free to join unions if they want, and they should be free not to join unions if they want. But Mia Chuck has asked about all of this at committee and can't stop talking about how wonderful and democratic unions are and how this, you know, taking away this bill is just going to make everything better. This brings me to Bill C-525. This bill changed the union certification and decertification systems under the Canada Labour Code, the Parliamentary Employment and Staff Relations Act, and the Public Service Labour Relations Act. The bill replaced the existing card check system with a mandatory vote system, despite the fact that the old system worked well for decades and there was little pressure to change it. C-525 makes it harder for for a union to be certified as a collective bargaining agent and makes it easier for a bargaining agent to be decertified. Makes it easier for a union to be decertified, but harder to be certified if you let people vote in secret. Hmm. Hmm. Why would that be? Could it be because when you let people vote in secret... They don't want to join unions. 
they don't want to be forced into something. But when you make them vote in public or sign cards as a way to say, yes, I will or yes, I won't, that they maybe feel intimidated. Could that be it, Marianne Miachuk, you freaking moron? Let's play the next clip. The card check system is a perfectly democratic way of gauging support as it ensures that an absolute majority of employees support the union, not just those who come out and vote. All right, Marianne. Here's the thing. Next time you're up for vote in Manitoba, we're showing up. And it's going to be a show of hands. And I'm going to be carrying a baseball bat. And it's going to be those that side with me, not those that get their own damned private booth to vote in. Do we have the clip of Mia Chuck? The one from where I asked her about this? Do we got, Forget clip three. Do we have the other one ready? Let me know when we do. I asked this woman on the day that she actually brought in Bill C-4 if she would give up the secret ballot. She didn't even know that that's what the bill was about because she is a fool. And I hate to get this worked up, but this is the woman in charge of our labor system. This is the woman that's supposed to be, I mean, forget impartial referee. You should have heard what she was saying about unions at the meeting today. But here she is. I think this is early January. I asked her about the whole secret ballot thing. It's a little long, but play along, will you? Would you be happy to give up the secret ballot for the next federal election? You said secret ballot isn't fair for unions. Should you be elected by anything well, other than a secret ballot? The issue with the, with the acts are that they were brought in without full consultation. The issue there was changing the percentage of uh, cards you need for certification and easing decertification. So these things were a direct attack on the labour movement. It disrupted a fair and balanced process that was working into one that was imbalanced. So what we're doing is saying we're changing that, we're going to take it back, take a step back, have a level playing field, and then move forward from but, there. But you're getting rid of secret ballot. How is that level playing field? We haven't elected politicians like that at the federal level since the 1870s. What we're looking at is changing a number of initiatives, and one of them was to change certification and decertification rules. Those things were not asked for. They're not necessary. And uh, that's why this bill... So you want to keep secret ballot for yourself, but not for union members or workers? There is no discussion about secret ballots or no secret ballots. The point here is these two bills had resulted in an unfair playing field for the labour movement. What we're doing is just restarting at a place where it was balanced, and the future, we'll see what happens. All right. So that's Marianne Miachuk back in late January, early February, proving that she is a freaking idiot because she didn't even know what her own bill was about. This has nothing to do with secret ballots or not secret ballots, blah, 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 blah. No, it's about secret ballots. That's what your bill is revoking from federally regulated workers. They didn't have it before. Now they did. You're taking it away, and you didn't know it. Now, I want to play you another clip. This is conservative MP Bob Zimmer asking about the whole issue of union corruption. And shouldn't there be openness? Because there's been union corruption in Canada. And you will be shocked. Because maybe you heard 
as Quebec was bringing down its budget last week, nobody was paying attention to it because, oh, there were seven politicians and political staffers arrested over corruption. Corruption that came about and was brought into the public view because of the Charbonneau Commission, which looked into corruption between politicians, the mob, unions, and bureaucrats. And Bob is asking her about union corruption. She says it doesn't exist, and they get to the Charbonneau Commission. You won't believe her response. To me, it, it strikes me as in contrast to accountability, uh, to a government that, that talks about accountability, to be doing something that's completely trying to, the appearance is to, to, uh, to hide something. Uh, I guess it comes, brings me back to my question. If, if the choice is between accountability and corruption, what's your choice? Some idea of corruption in the trade union movement, you're required, or I would encourage you to report such activities. I didn't say trade union. And, I don't know if you uh, know something I don't, that, but I didn't say trade that's union. That's the norm in the Canadian government, and in fact, if there's allegation of some kind of corruption, uh, that should be clearly reported and action would be taken. I think this hypothetical that you're trying to bring in a bill to stem something that doesn't exist is clearly on the contrary, a political on the contrary, uh, objective Minister. rather than one based on uh, the facts. The document actually states, countries like the United States and Germany have had cases of union corruption. Disclosure schemes have led to the recovery of massive amounts of money. These are facts. So we talk about accountability legislation being able to, to combat corruption. Again, my question to you is do you support accountability or corruption. ...that unions in Canada are corrupt, I recommend that he name them. What about the Charbonneau Commission? That silence you hear is Marianne Miachuk, our freaking Labour Minister, looking at her officials, and she actually leans over and says, Charbonneau Commission? Seven people arrested just last freaking week over it. It was televised daily in Quebec. She's the minister in charge of labor. She should know about this. The Hells Angels had a strip club rebuilt. It burnt to the ground. The Hells Angels owned a strip club north of Montreal and Laval. It burnt to the ground, and unions in Quebec paid a million dollars to rebuild it because the Hells Angels controlled those unions. And she knows none of this. She is incompetent. She is not worthy to sit in the House of Commons, never mind be a minister. And she is sitting there saying, there's no worries. There's no problems. Fire her butt now, Mr. Trudeau, before she embarrasses you more. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You won't hear this anywhere else. Trust you me. You will not hear this anywhere else. hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I don't think the mayor hates me. I'm not sure about, I don't think the chief of police hates me or the councillors. But I'll work on it. We'll see. They had a big meeting down at Ottawa City Hall about the Ottawa Police Service, the um, Police Services Board, and Cassie Alward was there, and Cassie 
this is something that has really played out for a good chunk of it on the airwaves here at CFRA with the police chief making comments, his public letter, then the response from an officer that hit reply all, I guess. And, and, and of course, the, uh, the Brotherhood or the union leader, Matt Scoff. Mm-hmm. So what happened down at City Hall today? So a number of things happened, actually. It was uh, it was a much more quiet meeting than I think people were expecting. I think people kind of expected uh, a bit of a shouting match, but it uh, wasn't like that. It started no, very... No noogies. No noogies. It started okay. very, uh, very quietly, very normally, um, and uh, eventually, you know, everything that has come out was addressed, but very quietly and very... Uh, you know, just in a statement format. Now, one thing that did come out of this meeting was that uh, the board has passed a motion to investigate the chief of police after the Ottawa citizen reported he helped his father-in-law, who is a former Gloucester police chief, get out of a careless driving ticket. Here is uh, the chief actually addressing that allegation. Recently, there have been two accusations raised regarding my conduct. I have never misled the board, and I have no way to influence the outcome of the ticket issued by the faculty there are clear processes in place to investigate the conduct of a chief of police in Ontario, and I have no concerns about them being followed. So he he basically threw out to them, you want to investigate me, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So very plainly saying this isn't true. Um, another allegation he is actually... Uh, but, but are they going to investigate him? They are. They are, they are going to investigate him. Um, Eli El Shantiri is the chair of... The Police Services Board here, he is uh, addressing the investigation. You heard it earlier from the chief. He would welcome an accountability because he's the one who's going to use uh, that accountability and transparency with his member. I think it's only fair to have all of us uh, fall into the same rules. So therefore, we had asked a higher uh, oversight to, to investigate. You know, I, I, I was there when Brian Mulroney asked for an investigation into his conduct, and we got the Oliphant Commission. He was very angry at the end, so maybe Chief Bordelow won't be so happy at the end. We'll see. It's entirely possible. Um, another uh, allegation that uh, Bordelow is addressing is that um, uh, one that he misled the board about. Uh, um, oh, this is the correctional officer. Yes. Sorry, sorry, the officers at Ottawa at the courthouse. Yeah, so basically what happened is that um, the president of the Ottawa Police Association says that, alleges that uh, Chief Bordelow has, for, he basically misled the, the board about... Um, Savings a best, and so on. Yeah, a best practices study. He Basically, he says that... Uh, Scoff says, rather, that Bordelow didn't make it clear that other cities use um, regular public police officers, whereas now in Ottawa we have private security guards doing security at the courthouse. So there is a little bit of drama there. And, of course, the big thing that everyone is talking about this week is this, um, you know, reply all gate where this um, police officer has basically emailed the entire police force saying that morale in the force is very low. Now, what's happened is that about 70 some officers have emailed the mayor uh, backing up this officer saying that morale is low. Uh, Bordalo actually speaking to the media after the meeting said that this is a positive sign. It's and it's indicative that the officers care about what they're doing. Here's uh, Bordalo speaking about that. I think it shows that people care about this police service. You know, some of the emails are getting uh, that I'm getting that I'm receiving from our members. Uh, the one common theme is they they love their job, they're passionate about the community safety, and they want to move forward. 
So he's he's encouraged by um, the people coming forward, and he does say that they're doing things to inc- improve morale, including filling the staffing shortage that has been quite a big problem. They've implemented this new wellness program where the chief says they're taking a holistic approach to the officer's health and their mental health. So steps are being taken, and uh, we'll see what happens next as far as... Uh, as far as that situation goes. All right. So it, it's um, a more subdued meeting than we're expecting. I think a lot of people thought there would be fireworks. Mm-hmm. That just didn't happen. That didn't happen. Up. And I should say that there were quite a few officers there. It was a very crowded room. There was standing now, did, room only by the time get it started. That they were, I, I heard on the, the CTV News at 6 here on CFRA, I heard them you know, describing it as if they were looking at them saying, hey, we're watching you. Did you get that impression for, sure. for them that from them that they were... You know, hey, buddy, you know, we don't have your back. We're watching your back. Yeah, I think when, when the chief walked in, one thing that was very noticeable was that there was a lot of chatter, you know, everyone just talking amongst themselves before the meeting started. Then the chief walks in, and it fell very quiet. It it became considerably more quiet in the room when the chief walked in. So there was definitely sort of um, a bit of tension there. You could definitely feel it in the room. All right, Cassie, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, when we come back, I'll give you my thoughts on what went down at the, well, what's been going on for the last little while with the Ottawa police. We'll take your calls, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility if you want to get in on this. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm not sure dancing now. I'm I'm standing and dancing here in the Hal Anthony studio. And you'll hear me as the, the leader of the unofficial opposition tomorrow. The budget coverage you won't get anywhere else. I told you, what you heard me say about Marianne Miachuk, you will not hear anywhere else. Because nobody else has the cojones to say that woman's too incompetent. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I welcome your calls on, on a number of issues. What happened at the Police Services Board tonight? Much more subdued meeting than many people were expecting. There are problems. There are obviously problems. Now... I don't know Charles Charles Bordel. I've never met him. Met his predecessor many times. Uh, ran, yeah, I actually met Vince Bevan more often outside of work than I ever did inside of work. But I have time for Charles Bordelow because he seems to want to take things in the right direction. But maybe I'm misguided. And if I am, call in and have your say. We'll try and at some point when the chief is not in complete media saturation, sit down and talk with them. But I welcome your thoughts on, on what happened at police services board tonight. The, the chief said, you know what, you think I did something wrong and, you know, this allegation that I got my father-in-law out of a ticket? Investigate me. Go ahead. I welcome it. The board said they will. There were questions about morale. He talked about how he's addressing them. You have thoughts? 521-TALK, 521-8255. But I also welcome your thoughts, your calls on the other big issues, the national issues that I've raised tonight. Such as, should Canada be calling 
what's happening to Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims in territories controlled by ISIS, genocide. That's something that Peter Kent, former cabinet minister, former global news anchor, some of you might remember him as, asked the government in question period today, and Pam Goldsmith-Jones gave a rather strange and weak answer. Canada strongly condemns the crimes perpetuated by the so-called Islamic State, including those committed against religious and ethnic minorities. But genocide is not a term to be used lightly, and Canada is a member of the International Criminal Court, which means the use of that term is different than it is for the United States, who is not. Uh, But the European Union, they're kind of members of the International Criminal Court, and they called it genocide back on February 4th. As I've told you a couple of times tonight, the former Harper government wanted to call it genocide. They just wanted an ally or two to go along with them and say, yeah, we, we agree it's genocide. None of them would. They lose power on October 19th. Fast forward February 4th. The European Union calls it genocide. The Vatican has called it genocide. And last week, the United States called it genocide. John McCallum, and I'll have this up on The Rebel tomorrow. John McCallum literally ran away from me. He would not say a word. This is a man that can't avoid a microphone, that can't avoid talking. He would not say a word twice when I asked him about the issue of genocide. And he's the minister in charge of the refugee file. If there's genocide going on, do do we not owe it to give priority treatment to Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims? Oh, that might be uncomfortable for Johnny Boy, so we're just going to skip that. Yep, let's not talk about that. Then there's the issue of Marianne Miachuk. This is a woman who, for reasons that are beyond my ken, is the Minister of Labor. And she doesn't even know what her own bill is about. Approved that months ago. Then she's before a committee today and is talking about how how wonderful and democratic unions are when they don't use secret ballots. The card check system is a perfectly democratic way of gauging support as it ensures that an absolute majority of employees support the union, not just those who come out and vote. Not just those that come out and vote. How'd you get your sorry butt into Parliament, Marianne? Was it just those that came out and voted? Should we go around, uh, I, I don't even know what riding she represents. I'll look it up. Should we go around your riding and just ask all the people that didn't vote? And I'll go around with a clipboard, and I'll have three guys behind me looking intimidating. And I'll, I'll ask all the people that didn't vote, well, would you have voted for this sorry excuse for an MP? And if they say no, can we recall you? Because, I mean, that sounds democratic. That's how non-secret ballots vote for unionized workers. But still, she wants to to do away with the secret ballot. We last, no, not we last. We've been using secret ballots in federal elections in Canada since 1874. We will not elect an MP with anything but. Why do workers in federally regulated industries deserve anything less? I welcome your calls on that. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. And then finally, 
the whole issue of the budget. What are we going to see in it? Well, Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau is talking about how we're going to be investing. This is all about investing. Can we play that clip of Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons today? Because Ron Ambrose is talking about how Trudeau is going to be borrowing billions. Remember, he promised $10 billion, just small deficits, just small little ones, just going to be tiny ones that you won't even notice. Now they're going to be three times the size. And he's asked about this in the House of Commons today and talks about how it's, don't worry about it, it's all wonderful. Uh, And we put forward a plan that focused on investing in our communities, helping the middle class and creating growth in a way that would help all Canadians. And that's exactly what we campaigned on. That's exactly what we're going to be delivering in tomorrow's budget. Hmm. Hmm. What he's going to be delivering in tomorrow's budget is a series of tax changes that will hurt innovation. It will hurt the high tech sector, especially here in Ottawa. The guys behind Shopify have already spoken out about this. You change the way that things like stock options are dealt with, you're going to be hurting small startup companies that don't have the money to pay but have the ability to say, hey, come work with us. Take the risk. Work with us now, and in five years, you're going to be richer than you can imagine. Those aren't rich people saying, hey, let's avoid taxes. Those are people saying, work with us now, you'll be rewarded later. That's how stock options work. That's how Shopify worked. An Ottawa company that is now a global leader, they couldn't have done it without the stock options. They've spoken out about it. Trudeau's going to change that. He's going to change the way that small business taxes are dealt with. He's going to be crushing innovation, the kind of, he's going to be crushing the kind of businesses that fuel growth in the economy. And yet his answer is going to be, we'll spend more government money. Really? Is that how it works? 5 to 1 talk, 5 to 1 8 2 5 5, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Welcome your call on your calls on any of this. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. If you want to join the conversation, asking you your thoughts on a number of issues from the budget that's going to come down tomorrow. Even if you have background questions on how these things go down, how they operate. Welcome your call, 521-TALK, 521-8255. Also asking about the issue of genocide. Should Canada be standing with the European Union and the United States now that, well, the I was going to say both those countries. The EU is not a country. It shouldn't even exist. Uh, but should should we be looking to join our allies in denouncing what is obviously a genocide in ISIS-controlled areas. And welcome your thoughts on this. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Or maybe you want to call in about the chief of police. 
the Ottawa Police Service event that happened tonight, or Police Services Board event that happened tonight. As I was speaking with Cassie Elward earlier, I said, so no nogies? Because people thought this was going to be a very, very contentious meeting. That tempers would flare. That didn't happen. By all accounts, it was a subdued affair. Do you have thoughts? Let me know what you think. And then finally, I want to ask you about Patrick Brown. There's a man that I don't know where I stand on. I've interviewed him twice now, once when he was running for leadership and then at the PC convention recently. During my 11 years on Parliament Hill, never really had a run-in with Patrick Brown. For good or for bad. And yet, this weekend, he's in Barrie at an event called Conservative Futures. This is an event where people from the conservative side of the political spectrum were invited to discuss how the movement, not any particular party, but how the movement moves forward. He spent his time dumping all over the federal party. And as we've discussed, this is a man who has already come out and backed Kathleen Wynne's idea for a carbon tax. He got elected by promising people all kinds of things that he's not delivering on. Now he's promising a carbon tax. He's attacking the federal conservatives and sounding like a liberal light leader. And I have to admit that it's making me concerned. I don't know where to stand on it. I, you know, as we played back the interview that I did with them at the PC convention here in Ottawa, I pointed out that, yes, he said he wanted a carbon tax, but he also said he would rip up the Ontario Retirement Pension Plan, which to me is a good, good move. It's a good idea. It is the right thing to do. And yet you've got this this guy out there that I, I don't know what he is. I don't know where he stands. And it leaves me wondering, are we heading into the next provincial election with someone who wants the endorsement of the Toronto Star rather than the support of conservatives and swing voters across the province? If you happen to be involved in PC politics in Ontario, call in. Tell me what you think. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. George in Arnprior, you're on Beyond the News. Do you want to talk about the budget? Let's talk about the budget. What do you expect? You you said there was going to be between 25 and 30 billion in deficit, right? Could go as high as 35. I expect 30 billion at least. Okay. If you go on on the internet and follow all the different websites dealing with silver, gold, and economy and stuff. We have no gold left, George. I know that. We if, sold it all off. But if you follow how they follow the economy, they, they say that we're headed towards a financial collapse, which means that the 25 to 30 billion bucks would just be a, a piss in the hole. Okay. G- can you give me an example of one of these websites? Um, uh, JSNIP uh, 4, uh, X22 report. Okay. I don't know these X22 ones. X22 is the easiest to go. It's, it has to do with economic collapse uh, blog. Now, if you think that we're going to collapse because we don't have gold? No, no. 
because it, because the, all the other situations in the world are accelerating up, eh? They're gaining in speed. In other words, get more, get more unemployment's increasing, and all, and all the figures that they're that they're giving in the U.S. The United States are are, are not accurate. They're mm-hmm. Way out, and the. Uh, Baltic Dry Index is still way down there. They're going to call that the new norm, but if they're not shipping anything out, therefore they're not exporting. The exportings are going. So, you know, like, uh, they're, they're hitting it all the wrong way. They should be getting ready for economic collapse. The Baltic Dry Index is a very strange and not well-known um, for, way of tracking how things are shipped by sea. Yeah, and, but- and you're right. It has been going down for the last while. Yeah, but the important part about it was they weren't shipping stuff uh, from uh, Europe to, I think, the States or something. One way, one way it wasn't going. And uh, you can see the way, the, way, the way all these different things are going there, that they aren't telling how the economy actually is accelerating towards a collapse scenario. Well, I don't know that we're into collapse. As bad as I think things are, George, I'm not sure that we're into collapse, but I am worried about the direction we're going. That much is for sure. When you go back into the uh, what happened in 2008, mm-hmm. you compare, compare all, all the things like the G, uh, GPP and everything, uh, inflation and everything, all the sentiments then, you get the exact, exact same pattern but worse. All right. You know? Well, we'll see. We'll see how things go over the next little while. I really hope it's not a collapse. Thanks, I hope George. Not so. Bye. All right. Gloria in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Good, good evening. Um, I just want to talk briefly about, about two things, uh, mm-hmm. Chief Bordalo and also public safety. Sure. For for Chief Bordalo and and I'll include Eli El Shantiri. Uh, both of them have, to me, have been ignoring the dissatisfaction of the police force for too long, and it's finally boiled over and into the media and and to the public. Uh, there is a definite shortage of police staff. And, and they they are moved around into different areas of policing uh, because of this shortage, like they were uh, chess pieces on on a chessboard, you know. And and uh, the, the, the frustration has has gotten so bad that uh, it's uh, it's open. And I don't feel that 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 the police chief or Al Shantiri uh, are really. Uh, they're just giving lip service, like oh, everything's fine. There's nothing wrong. It's it's uh, the the complaints uh, I feel are are ignored, and it's just um, oh uh, they're trying to single out one person or or maximum right. two people, and everything I'll, I'll, is rosy. Let, we got a minute left. I'll let you make your next comment, and, and okay. then I'll respond. Okay, on on public safety, I I think it's obvious that that some of the public they do not feel safe, especially with the three killings of these possibly uh, gang members near near Ritchie Street, and Chief Bordalo he he keeps asking for information from the public, but they're afraid to speak out because they worry about retaliation, and I've I've not heard myself uh, uh, Chief Bordalo offer any pr- protection or reassurance that their names will be kept secret if they do come forward. I, well, I think that should be stressed. If there is, maybe I, there I, I think that I think that standard practice, as for, um, you know, shootings of gangsters against gangsters, I've been covering murders a long time, Gloria. People do not, as a rule, get murdered by somebody that, it, that they don't know. That's the rarity, and that's when it becomes big news, because most mm-hmm. often it's someone that knows someone and yes. often not not in a good way 
and that's what we're dealing with mostly in Ottawa at the moment, not exclusively. No, but it's it, it's fear. It, it, it's the fear of them coming forward. And if uh, Chief Orlo would at least assure the public that, yes, you can come forward uh, uh, and, and, you know, just say, we'll keep your name anonymous, but we need to find out. We need help. All right. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the call, Gloria. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with more. Your calls after this. 521-TALK, 521-8255. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You got thoughts on what we're talking about? You know the number. 521-TALK. 521-8255. Stop 580 on Bell Mobility. And if you're out of town, it's 1-800-580-2372. No, I'm not going to reprise my rule of doing accents on demand as of uh, as I did on St. Patrick's Day. Although, if you ask nicely, I will at least try. Right now, though, a couple of you waiting on the line want, wanting to talk about Chief Bordalo. Well, let me read off to you the motion that was passed tonight at the Ottawa Police Services meeting. This is about the whole issue of the chief and the allegation that a ticket was cancelled. Whereas there have been a number of media reports about Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordelow having called the Ottawa Police Offences Court office on January 25, 2016 to find out the name of the prosecutor assigned to a matter in traffic court that day involving a family member, and whereas... This is the board's first meeting uh, following the publication of these reports. And whereas the December 7th, 2015 Statistics Canada survey of public confidence in Canadian institutions showed that more than 80% of Ottawa residents have some or great deal of concern about the police. And whereas maintaining that very high level of public confidence is an important component of ensuring adequate and effective policing in the municipality... Therefore, be it resolved that the Ottawa Police Services Board ask the Ontario Civilian Police Commission to investigate, inquire into, and report back to the board in accordance with subsection 25-1A of the Police Services Act on the Chief's actions in this matter. This was no off-the-cuff remark by the Chief that prompted this. This was well planned out. Everyone knew it was happening. The Chief knew it was happening, I'm sure. The board knew it was happening, and now it's happening. They're going to investigate. As I said to Cassie Elward just less than an hour ago, I was in the room when Brian Mulroney, oh, no, sorry, that was a letter. He sent a letter. He demanded that Prime Minister Harper call in an, uh, a public inquiry into his dealings with Carl Hein Schreiber. And then when Prime Minister Harper said, well, I guess I should. I mean, a former prime minister is saying, call a public inquiry. I better do it. He got really upset because it didn't make him look good. So who knows how this will turn out to uh, for Chief Bordalo, But we shall see. Michelle in Ottawa, you're on Hello. Beyond the News. Hello, Brian. I, go ahead and do some impressions. They were good. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was wondering, will you be doing karaoke at the CFRA night? Um, I'm, I'm not even sure I'll be down to eat a donut, but we'll see. Well, you I have should. a show that night. Well, that's okay. You can, you can come I'll, down. I'll, I'll pop down in commercial breaks and uh, and eat some pulled pork if they have some. Well, that would be nice. Anyway, in regards to the police, listen, when uh, there's obviously something going on there. And, you know, even with Calgaban, like when somebody goes and, and takes their own life at their place of work, it's not just personal. There's, It's not just stuff that's going on in their personal life. There's a reason they've chosen that. And there's something going on there. And it's not that they're not paid well enough. They're paid well enough. But it's really important to the health of the community that your people who come to protect you are happy. And it's really important to the community. And leadership starts at the top. And if they're asking, if they're upset enough that they would like Mr. El Shantiri to step aside, you know what? Appease them and just give them that to start and and allow them to have their grievances. Look at what we just hired with the big announcement today was all the extra prison guards. Mm-hmm. Well, the prisons, the prisons wouldn't be so full if they treated the mentally ill where they needed to be treated, if they treated the addicts where they needed to be treated. Prison is no place for those people. If they opened up the courthouse and had around-the-clock courts so they could free up some cases and get some people out of there, if things all over the map were deemed, being done correctly. But then you've got these guys who bust their arse, go into horrible situations, show up to protect you, investigate, do all this stuff, and then they're tripped up in court, and they're constantly, you know, like told to stand down and shut up. And, and this is, well, it comes out, and it comes out that they're unhappy, and there's something going on there. But the, to, they can't even speak out because it will prevent the advancement of their careers. And when how many guys in the ticket department were all, was there 12 guys or something? It was a huge mm-hmm. number. Like there's something there, and why are they doing it, and how long have they been well, doing they, it? Well, they they have said so far that they have uh, changed the way that they look at promotions. They've changed the way they look at advancement, and I understand that. I, I'm a little uncomfortable linking uh, Staff Sergeant Gadban's suicide to what's going on in the police force right now. Now, I mean, that, well, that, that, that was more. Just... Hold, hold on, hold on, Michelle. That was more than a year ago, and quite frankly. You know, until you've walked a mile in someone's shoes, you don't know what's going on in their life, no matter how perfect things look. And and fair enough, that's a fair enough point too. But let's let's be real here. These people. Just today, I heard an ad. You know, if you're a first responder and you're feeling this way, shut there is help. Shut up and get help. How many times do you hear that about PTSD? How many times? And the reality is, is that that's just fluff. Guys in those situations. There should be real help accessible to them where they can still, you know, keep their anonymity that they've sought after some help, that it won't affect the advancement of their career, and help should be immediately available. There should be a special room in the building for them to go to after they've just seen the horriblest things, and they can decompress and and debrief and whatever. I I have not heard from enough uh, Ottawa police officers to know what it's like. In, in that service, I can tell you how dark I was before I came back to Ottawa and started working at CFRA in 2002. I was a local reporter in Montreal, and there were 66 murders. I think that was a record that year. 
66 murders in Montreal, and I covered off probably most of them. And I ended up in a very dark place and ended up going to see a shrink. And it, it it's not easy. It's difficult to deal with. It's difficult to see the awfulness of life day in and day out and, right. and not, have, not have it affect the, you. But yeah. I, I have, I have search heard. My father was a rescue pilot, and it was more often search and recovery. Mm-hmm. And those boys handled it the same way. They all would show up back at our house, and it was very quiet for a long period of time. And the bottle would open, and the drinks would pour, and then slowly somebody would say something. And then by, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, they were in a whole different frame of mind. That's it's, not a healthy way of no, dealing it, it, with their stuff, but that was how it was done then. The camaraderie, and that's how they kind of got, got it out. It, it too often ends up being drinking and dark humor and, and things that don't help in the long run. And, and, no, and, and, and I, wish it, I wish it wasn't that way. I don't know what it's like at the Ottawa Police Service, but I do know that within the military, there are, I have heard complaints from people who are in the military that if you actually have PTSD or you have a problem and you come forward, it can hurt your career. And then there are those that abuse the system in coming forward because they've done the mental calculation and the mathematical calculation and they say... I don't really care about this job anymore, but if I can convince them I've got this, and they're a bit like radar on MASH, if yeah. I can convince them I've got this, they'll buy me out and I'll get more money than than I well, would listen, otherwise. And there's can... the two different sides. There's the guys that are committed to the job but don't want to come forward because they're worried it will hurt their career, and then the guys that are playing the system. Absolutely. And you know what? The the advances they're making in neuroscience, and when they start to marry some of this new technology with treatments, you know, and they, 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 it will really change uh, the face of uh, our society. I'm very hopeful for the future. All right. But I would like to just mention something about Patrick Brown. All right, quickly, because I'm out of time. Well, I just, I don't think we have a hope in hell. Uh, Lisa was my girl. Uh, Christine Elliott should have never thrown her hat in the in the ring because it really, really threw it off. And when the election was over and we were back in again, and Lisa stood up and had herself thrown out, that's the kind of stuff I was hoping with scandal after scandal. And where is Patrick Brown? It seems like he's off getting a manicure and his eyebrows plucked. Like he, he's just not a guy I have any faith in. All right, absolutely none. Michelle, thanks for the call. You're welcome. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to get in the last word? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Just checking in uh, on a little bit of the Facebook. See how people are reacting to what we're posting right now. And happy to see many of you willing to share what we can expect from Trudeau's budget tomorrow. There's a video I posted earlier tonight. It's from the rebel.media. And it is about the fact that Justin Trudeau and his colleagues embraced the idea of tax and spend. Do you remember when tax and spend liberal was a a bad idea, something that liberals wanted to run away from? Uh, don't call me a tax and spend liberal. I'm not a tax and spend liberal. I'm a I'm a pragmatic liberal. 
Or you remember back to the Gretchen years when they actually cut spending. When they said Canada cannot afford to be called a banana republic by the Wall Street Journal, we've got to do something. And Jean Chrétien ordered Paul Martin, because make no mistake, make no mistake, Paul Martin did not want to do the austerity measures that he did. If there was a bigger lefty in the leadership of the Liberal Party than Paul Martin, it would be Justin Trudeau. Paul Martin hated every single cut that he had to do. Despite the fact that he came out of the business world, just remember that he came out of the world of the Demarais. He came out of the world of Power Corp. Those are the people that backed him from beginning to end. But Justin Trudeau, is he's embracing this idea of tax and spend liberalism. He loves it. And so tomorrow, that's what we're going to see in the budget. We're going to see an attack on the small business tax rate. We're going to see an attack on stock options and how they're taxed. We're going to see an attack on everything that allows those that are willing to put their own money on the line to start a business attacked. And then we're going to see them opening the taps, opening the spigots, and letting government money flow out. This is what we can expect. And... As I mentioned earlier, I fully expect to see the 45-day work year brought forward. Work 45 days, get EI for a year. The liberals always put it in terms of 360 hours. 360 hours is the lowest level that you can get for qualifying for employment insurance. It's something that has been brought forward in... Atlantic Canada at different times, but it's you have to work far more hours in many parts of the country to get EI. In for at least eight years, liberals have railed against this idea. No, no, we've got to make it uniform across the country. And the labor minister, who's incompetent in so many ways, was hinting earlier to, today that there would be big changes to the EI system. But I just want to play for you again a couple of clips of the labor minister, Marianne Miachuk. Now, we've heard from liberals that, you know, the natural resources minister, he should not be a champion for Canada's natural resources. He should be like a referee. He should be an impartial arbiter. But when it comes to the labor minister, she can talk about how wonderful unions are and how we need more unions and then turn around and talk about how we need to make sure that unions aren't held to the same standard that every everyone else is when we face elections. Would you elect somebody without a secret ballot? I wouldn't. If you had to go down, I mean, I'm open about my politics. If you listen to this program, you know where I stand. But most people, eh, it's like, do you vote liberal? Do you vote conservative? Do you vote NDP? A lot of people don't want to say. And they don't want to say for various reasons. But when it comes to joining a union in federally regulated industries, Canada's labor minister believes that you should just, you know, put up your hand. Yeah, I want to join the union. No, I don't want to join the union. Please don't hit me with the baseball bat, Jimmy. So here she is at committee earlier today talking about how great the system used to be before the conservatives brought in the idea 
that you could vote without the guy sitting next to you knowing how you voted. This brings me to Bill C-525. This bill changed the union certification and decertification systems under the Canada Labour Code, the Parliamentary Employment and Staff Relations Act, and the Public Service Labour Relations Act. The bill replaced the existing card check system with a mandatory vote system, despite the fact that the old system worked well for decades and there was little pressure for unions. C-525 makes it harder for, uni for a union to be certified as a collective bargaining agent and makes it easier for a bargaining agent to be decertified. The certification and decertification level of support to trigger a vote is the same, 40%. Union bosses don't like this because when people are given the choice to vote in the secrecy of a ballot box, to go behind the curtain or behind the little cardboard stand that we use in most of our elections in Canada and cast a ballot without anyone knowing, most of us say, I've thought about it and I don't like it. I'm not joining the union. But if you are, if you are sitting there with people looking over your shoulder, you're more likely to say you'll join the union. But Marianne Miachuk doesn't see it that way. To her, the idea of card check, of someone looking over your shoulder while you vote, is extremely democratic. The card check system is a perfectly democratic way of gauging support, as it ensures that an absolute majority of employees support the union, not just those who come out and vote. As I said earlier, why don't we go around Mary Ann Miachuk's riding and ask everyone that didn't bother to show up to vote how they feel about her. And if we can find enough, then we throw her out of office. Would she accept that? Probably not. Would she accept to be elected by anything other than a secret ballot? Probably not. But union bosses back Trudeau and the Liberals in many ways. They donated millions to third-party groups, super PACs like Engage Canada. They ran their own advertising campaigns targeted just at their unions, and they all spent combined millions of dollars on public ad campaigns to attack the Conservatives and boost the Liberals. So, of course, the Liberals are turning around, and you can bet that tomorrow there will be numerous changes that unions have pushed for for a long time, including the 45-day work year. Work 45 days, get a year's worth of unemployment. That'll be in there. There will also be issues such as new tax credits. If you invest in a labor-sponsored investment fund, which is like a, a bad mutual fund that gets you a bad return, you'll get a tax break. Labor-sponsored fund, something that I foolishly put money into years ago, they don't give you the return on investment, but they're backed by unions, and so they're going to get special treatment that, say, a mutual fund backed by Scotiabank or RBC or TD will not get. The unions will get their payback tomorrow for backing Trudeau, for backing Miachuk, for backing the progressive worldview that's going to help run this country 
into the ground. We'll have full bu- budget coverage tomorrow. I'll be in the lockup all day. We'll bring you the interviews. We'll bring you the details. We'll bring you the news you won't hear anywhere else. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.